certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. There was just one extract of Bradley Edwards' DNA created in the Pathwest lab. Today, court heard it was in storage for almost a decade. Welcome back to Claremont in Conversation. This is Day 56. Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and criminal defence lawyer Damien Cripps with you today. Tim, this is pretty important because surely this does narrow the opportunities for contamination. Yes, Nat. So this goes to the window of where um, the prosecution say there possibly could have been a contamination but there wasn't because, as we discussed yesterday, the uh, items of significant importance for Kira, the fingernails and the uh, sample from Mr Edwards that was taken from Karakata were never opened together, they were never boxed together, they were never tested together, they were never run even together, and, and it seems they were never even on the same shelf together. Um, and... The, the little bit of evidence that we heard um, about that this morning um, just reinforced what was heard yesterday. So, and as you said, there was just one swab taken um, with Mr. Edwards's um, DNA in it. The extract was created, and then it was that was done in '95, um, days after the rape at Karakata um, occurred. Um, and then the, the, the extract was created in '96. It was tested in 1999, and then it went and it went into storage and stayed there until uh, September 2008. And so that is why the prosecution say it's fantasy or fanciful to suggest that um, the contamination could have occurred because the extracts. The samples, the exhibits were never, ever close enough for that to happen. And, and Mr. Egan, Scott Egan, uh, his, his best quote on that was was one of his very last quotes last night when he when he was basically asked, so if if this was to occur, how could it have occurred, Mr. Egan? And, and he said, and I quote, the DNA would have had to get out of the tube with the lid on it out of the box that has the lid on it, through the box with the lid on it, and then into the tube with the lid closed on it. So, that it, and it goes right back to, to, to right back at the start of the trial when Miss um, Barbara Gallo said, DNA just doesn't fly around the room. And in Mr. Egan's opinion, it would have had to do more than that. It would have had to have superhuman powers to get through a lid, through a lid, through a lid, and then through a lid to, to, for that contamination to occur. I mean, Damien, as a layperson, to me, this sounds, you know, really open and shut. There was no way this DNA could have gone out. And so how could it possibly um, have been contamination that Mr. Edwards' DNA was found under Kira's nails? Well, we haven't heard from the defence yet. And and the reason I say that, Nat, is because um, I'm not in a position where I've got all the information that that, that team has. So I would imagine that they are um, prepared to... Um, and, and am I correct in saying that, Tim, we haven't heard from the defence in relation to this witness yet? Uh, well, we did get some cross-examination uh. today, Damien, and he did and he did go to contamination events, but the, 
the, this key one, this possibility of AJM42 being contaminated, he can't really go there and he hasn't really gone there because they can't actually pinpoint a point in time when it might have occurred. So what he did go to today was the documentation surrounding AJM40 and 42 before it went to the UK and maybe possibly pointing out, well, the documentation wasn't really um, gold, platinum standard uh, uh, up to 97, 98. And so there might be a little bit of uh, uncertainty um, about the uh, total continuity. So that's where he went with it today. But um, in terms of the contamination, he couldn't really go there because they can't find anything at any point in time that it could have happened. So um, Mr. Jovic, or one of his team members, did take the opportunity to cross-examine Mr. Egan in relation to it, but based on what he didn't say, you're telling us that it appears like there's no real... Um, armour for him to attack not that particular um, uh, point I don't think even though he raised it in uh, in his opening that that is the possible way it could have happened but what he has done is he's gone to all these other contamination events that we di- we discussed um, uh, at length last at the end of last week and today we found out about even more contamination events that that is where he's trying to raise the doubt in that, look, it's happened here, it's happened here, it's happened here, it's happened on multiple occasions, different exhibits, different times. So why couldn't it have happened, um, even though I can't, we can't actually say that it happened? Well, Tim, we talked yesterday about um, Pathwest lab error rate, which um, you calculated for us yesterday at being 0.16%. But Paul Jovic challenged that today. He did that, yes. So that was based on, as we discussed yesterday, a, um, quality issues, 28 that Mr. Egan listed um, among 17,000 analyses, and you do the quick maths, and that's what he came up with, 0.16. Today, Mr. Jovic questioned him and challenged him quite strongly on that because he pointed out, um, on the one hand, that one of those errors or one of those quality issues actually pertained to five separate contamination events that were all discovered at the same time at Selmark. So that obviously bumps the number up. And then he pointed out some more issues in terms of labeling, in terms of um, mislabeling um, that he would, uh, that he asked Mr. Egan, well, wouldn't you consider that maybe a quality issue well possibly i would and it wasn't on your list no it wasn't so what mr jovich was trying to do today quite forcibly was bump that number up and so when you do the calculation obviously it goes up a lot uh, well, a, a little bit but a significantly higher than mr egan said and the most significant of those to my mind today was uh, four more contamination events that we hadn't heard of previously um, that in addition to the seven that we heard of yes, uh, last end of last week um, and they were all involving Jane and, and Kira's exhibits um, and they were all again uh, embarrassing for Pathwest to have to um, admit to and explain about Tim can you tell us what those um, four events are? Mm, yes so uh, let's just go through them one by one. The first one that he raised was um, 
again in connection to Laurie Webb, who we've discussed um, ad infinitum at the, in the podcast. He was a leading forensic scientist at PathWest um, over a lot of the time that Claremont and Macro investigation was going on. There was a knife that was seized in relation to Kira's case, not Jane's case, Kira's case. We believe it might have been found in a, in, in a taxi or something. We haven't had the real details around that, but it whatever reason, it was seized, it was thought to be of interest, it was tested, and when those tests came back, it was found to be contaminated with Laurie Webb's DNA. Um, uh, there was a sample of Jane's hair that was found to have been contaminated by a female scientist's DNA profile, we learned today. There was a razor that was um, taken from Kira's apartment when she first went missing that was later tested and found to be contaminated with Mr. Webb's DNA. And then uh, there was also an earring, and we don't know the full details yet of, of, of whose that was or where it was found, but it was an earring that was seized um, uh, in, in connection to one of the cases, and that was also found to be contaminated with a staff member's DNA profile. So on our calculations uh, in court, that takes it up to 11 specific uh, different instances of contamination involving uh, PathWest tests. Ten of those involve a PathWest staff member, and one of those involves the, the unrelated victim that we talked about yesterday. So, the um, the error list, or the you know the, the, the list of blunders, keeps going up. Um, and in that context, you would say that the the possibility of a of of, of a of doubt being raised in Justice Hall's mind um, has to also be increasing. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here and these errors are further embarrassment for Path West. But I still think people listening will be saying to themselves, so what? They're not crucial exhibits. How does this help the defence case or hinder the prosecution case? Yeah, well, I mean, that is the, the that is the sixty four thousand dollar question. What will Justice Hall make of all this? He's been he's been very engaged. He's been asking lots of questions about contamination and testing and quality and how they're recorded and how they're investigated. So he obviously you know, just by the tenor of his questions, you know, he's paying attention to this. Um, but what he makes of it all, and whether he deems it. Hugely relevant to the actual case in hand. Well, again, we're going to have to, to wait and see on that. But that will be one of the portions of his judgment and of his verdict when it comes down. That will be very, very closely scrutinised by not not just everyone involved in the case, but all of those um, that, that 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 aren't involved in the case but have become involved over over the coverage. If, if you think about it quite logically, Tim um, and Natalie, one of the things that arises to people who are processing this in their mind may be how could they deal with it? You know, like the individuals who are listening, everyone's taking part and listening and people in Western Australia are thinking about um, how this is unfolding. And what seems to me is that um, obviously, as we discussed the other day, there's a lot that falls back to Justice Hall making the decision at the end of the day. But if people who are listening can logically process this, um, what Tim's just explained in their own mind, in that um, although we've got quite a, 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 I think it was 11 that we came to, 11 faults or mistakes that have been um, identified by Path West, but today it seems that there's been um, significant evidence that 
on the prosecution's behalf at least, seeks, seeks to protect yep. the crucial piece of evidence, which is the, um, the, the accused person's DNA arising on one of the, um, the victims. And, and if, you can, if, if the listeners play that out in their mind, is ask themselves, would they be satisfied that what the prosecution had put forward today protected um, their case even in light of the um, 11 mistakes or the 11 faults that had come up. Um, it, it's, it, it, the, the issue that you have with it is that those 11 mistakes, all they really speak to are the character of the testing and the character of what is taking place in Path West. It doesn't necessarily speak directly to what might have happened to that DNA that um, becomes so crucial in coming to the answer in this case so then i guess him and there's this will come up over the uh, in the future i guess in the process of the trial is can that be attacked by the defense <clears throat> the specific evidence in relation to um mr edwards can that be further attacked um in terms of contamination by the defense and or can it be further protected by the prosecution. So as they go further towards the finish, that'll become one of the things that becomes key and central to the decision-makers' process. And, um, Tim, are you of the view that it's, we're signed off on that piece of evidence now, or is there more I, to come? We, we're getting towards the end now of this, Damien, because as far as we understand this, Mr Egan, being the reporting scientist, is the last of the Path West staff to be to give evidence. And then next week we go to um, Dr Whitaker, which is concerning the actual testing done in the UK on the, on AJM 40 and 42. Um, and on the, even on the defence case, the, the contamination must have happened prior to that. And then we go on to the statistical analysis of the likelihood of it being Mr. Edwards's DNA, which there's no real challenge about. So, yeah, I, I, this, this, these couple of days have been crunch time, I think, for both sides. And that was why the, the, the pointed questions put by Ms. Barbara Gallo and the graphical representation of where the exhibits were at what time and, and in, in context with each other um, were, so, uh, were so important late last night and then this morning um, because because after this I think um, the, the, there's nowhere else to go for Mr Jovic uh, until he gets to well, I mean obviously he's got his defence case to come I mean we don't know what his DNA potential DNA witnesses are going to be and on the defence side so he might have something um, he might have something more to say um, when it when it comes to, to his turn but in terms of really trying to land some blows on the on the prosecution case yeah the, the today and um, you know parts of tomorrow um, are, are really his um, are really his big show at it it's interesting Damien because when you ask us to think about this, Put yourself in this position and think about how you would make a decision and, and what you would think of this evidence. And, and I sit here and I think, OK, well, if I was a juror, you know, this would be so incredibly difficult. And it goes back to this idea, which is, you know, you can see why there is someone of Justice Hall's calibre sitting in this position, because it feels at this stage almost impossible um, to see which way it's going. So I'm... In relation to this evidence we're talking about today, given what I've heard from Tim, it, I'm not of the view that this specific 
piece of information as it stands at the moment is so difficult to deal with because if there was two samples of DNA, one being Mr Edwards and one being Miss Glennon's, and they were sealed in containers from the, the, the date that you started the time test from, and, and they never crossed paths all the way up until today, then you couldn't possibly say that they were contaminated. And, of course, what we've got in between those dates, Tim, as I understand it, is we do have a few incidents where um, the DNA samples were opened or moved around, but what the prosecution are saying is that they never crossed paths enough yep. that they would be, be, be able to be contaminated. Yeah. Now, if you accepted that, there's not, there's not um, much scope to move from the, the argument that they could never have been contaminated. I think that's... Um, where we might have gotten to today, if, I, if I'm understanding Tim um, correctly, and Tim, correct me if you think there's something out of whack in what I've just said there. No, no, that's absolutely spot on, David. So, and that's that's been the prosecution um, argument all along that that any any notion of this happening is errant fantasy was the way Miss Barbagallo put it in uh, in her opening, and fanciful was the way she put it yesterday. But so then, what would make what does make it difficult is. You do have these character, the test character flaws that have shown the up. Sloppy procedures. The sloppy procedures. Mm. But potentially, I would think that what you would have to ask yourself about those flaws is how can I use those? How, how, do they, how can they influence this other bit of information that I've just been given? And I'm um, hypothetically saying if we were to say that the two tests of Mr Edwards, the two samples of Miss, one sample of Mr Edwards and the one sample of Miss Glennon's that travelled impeccably through this time period, hypothetically, you couldn't because you would just say, well, there's nothing to suggest that they are contaminated. So the contaminated um, samples and the flawed samples are somewhat irrelevant. All they do is show um, some, some, throw some doubt on the procedures um, in the in the lab and um, during the period uh, that long period of time. But if we got to the end of that um, period in relation to the two crucial pieces of DNA, it's pretty difficult to see how a, cont- a contamination could have occurred. So. Um, on that front, Natalie, what I'm saying is it does make it a bit easier um, just in relation to those two key piece of, piece of, um, pieces of DNA, but certainly that's not to be, it's not lost on me that there's so much other evidence that's got to be considered in the context of yes, that as well. In a broader, in a broader way, we're looking at hypothetical versus actual. Yeah. And didn't we have um, a revelation recently that contamination could happen through the air conditioning duct, that it could fly around the room. Didn't we? Didn't, well, um, just to confuse yeah. matters, yes, we did. Well, well I'm not trying to confuse <laughs> yeah, matters. I, I, as I said on the day, Daniel, that was, <laughs> that was an example from um, from the, the lab in the UK, from Cellmark, and, 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 and they were, you know, top class, and they're, and they're the ones that had the, the listeners remember, the air that flows in, the air that flows out of it, you know, so it, even it, like minute particles, invisible particles in the air wouldn't get sucked in when the door was opened and all that, and they did have an instance of somehow a skin cell or something getting into the air conditioning and somehow contaminating, So, and that was obviously specifically raised um, by Mr. Jovic to make the point, but what I said on the day, and I, and I still stand by it is 
that was a, a different lab on a different side of the world at a different time and a different complete, completely different case on a completely different continent. So if we're talking about you know a lot of noise, and, and it has been, there's been a lot of noise about all these contaminations at Path West. Is it white noise? Is it just is it just static, irrelevant to what we are, you know, really concentrating on, or could the judge possibly, um, you know, put it all together and say, well, you know, does it raise that that doubt that, uh, to such a level that um, I have to find that it could have happened, and you know, that's what he's going to have to decide. The most important thing about all of that that swings on the back of that for the Western Australian people is it gives us a really good insight into what the judge has to, what the justice has to go through so all of these things that you might think about and go well it's not relevant what you need to put into your mind is that this is what the decision maker has to go through these are the processes that he has to go through to make that decision so yeah they're pretty significant um, even though we're not commissioned with coming up with a result and an answer there is someone that is well it's interesting that we're talking about you know the hypothetical side of things because i think tim today uh paul jovic did ask a hypothetical question which did actually cause some angst yes uh, he, uh, he did get a little bit um uh, underswept by the by the judge today um he was asking uh, specifically about this evidence matrix that was um, created by Mr. Bagdonovicius um, in 2003 when he was asked to go through all the crucial exhibits and um, and come up with um, a definitive list of, of what they had and what needed to be done to them and what could possibly done, be done to them in the future. And Mr. Jovic asked, was asking in particular about a couple of, of the lines, where, and, and one in particular, AJM40, where Mr. Bagdonovicius had written... Um, uh, debris only and uh, no analysis um, uh, could be made or something along those lines. And uh, Mr. Jovic was asking Mr. Egan, well, was that really sufficient? Should he have made more notes? Um, and was that note correct, um, given that what he did? And would you class that as a, as a quality issue? And uh, the judge uh, basically, you know, blocked him off and said, well, we know what Mr. Bagdonovicius said that he did. Just ask him about that. Don't ask him hypothetical questions um, but based on, on something, you know, on a construct that you're making of it. So um, that got a bit uh, willing in, in the afternoon. And then later on, um, Mr. Jovic was also backed up a, a little bit um, when he when he, when he he tried to return to the, the same sort of um, questioning as well in a different area um, so it, it just it just once again showed how on the ball Justice Hall was I've got to say Miss Barbara Gallo also made some objections about um, relevance today as well um, and look this is the fourth day that Mr Egan's been on the stand it's been a long stint for him um, uh, there's been times where he's, he, he's, he's, he's had to gather his thoughts it's a long stint for him in the witness box very technical evidence which um, you know needs a lot of concentration um, and I, I think everyone will be quite relieved when we get to the end of, of, of this section of this week um, because that will give us some light at the end of the tunnel that the DNA portion of the trial um, will be uh, will be concluded. Tim what um, people can take from that is I would suggest is some comfort in knowing that you've got three people, three teams, if you will, the court, the prosecution and the defence. And when 
oh, I'm going to use the cross-examination as an example. When the prosecu- um, the defence uh, get their turn to cross-examine someone, they have to make sure, they're obligated to make sure that they sign off on everything that's possibly there that they need to ask a question about. And I mean, I mean this you could never you know, put a list down of everything that you possibly can ask. But what you do need to do is make sure you get all the important points. Obviously, you know, the, the obvious things that um, defence lawyers should ask or a prosecution should lead in their evidence. And what people should take some comfort about is that we've got, it seems from what we're hearing, that we've got three um, leaders of those teams that are playing their roles very efficiently. So um, what Mr Jovich is trying to extract as much information as possible under cross-examination. Justice Hall's saying, well, hang on, I don't think you need to go there. He, 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 Mr Jovich moves on to whatever the next subject might be, comes back a little bit later on, finds himself in the same, same realm and Justice Hall pulls him up again. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's magnificent to know that, that that system is working the way that it is so that um, Mr Jovich or the defence are filling their obligations and the, the, the court is being kept moving along efficiently and trying to get all those, um, you know, cross all those T's and dot all those I's the way they should. So it's necessary, I guess, that both sides are at times trying to push the boundaries to get the full answer that they're chasing if the answer is there. Absolutely, and we'll, and I think we'll see the same thing with the, when the defence lead and any witnesses if they do, um, that the prosecution will stand up and they will take, um, they will cross-examine them to the nth degree to, to find to explore all the corners. Sometimes when you're in exploring a corner you weren't necessarily meaning to explore, you find something you didn't anticipate was going to be there. Um, but I think what you, we're seeing here is that that, the, um, that Justice Hall is letting it go to a certain point that you're saying, okay, there's nothing there, let's move to, let's stay where we need to be. So, I mean, and, and it, I can imagine being in the courtroom, it would be arduous on the fourth day of having the same witness. It'd be terribly taxing on the witness, um, not only just having to answer the questions, but cast his mind back and, and, and keep himself alert to all the questions and what his directions, what directions he's getting from the judge. And pretty heavy four days, I would have thought. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's a very interesting question um, for you, Damien, from Charlotte in East Perth. Would a lawyer from either side possibly use the tactic of keeping impactful questions for the end of the day so that the last point or answer the judge hears before they retire for the day? From reading the live blogs, it would seem a lot of the big issues are coming towards the end of court sitting days. Would that be a coincidence or deliberate? I think that to some extent it would be deliberate simply because um, when you think you've got a really significant point, you you develop a tactic about how you will launch that point. Um, and I'm not, obviously not sure on what um, the prosecution or defence tactics are in this case specifically. But if you had a tactic that you thought would be a bit mind-blowing or you would, it would be... Um, have a significant impact on the way that the decision maker's thought process was working, you would potentially explore all the boundaries of that, just tread the waters around the outside of it to see that it was going to unfold the way you thought it was. And then you would say, okay, I've got everything set up exactly the way that I want it to be. And conveniently, it's in the afternoon, so that this could be one of the last thoughts that not only the jury or the judge would leave with. So then you um, have your have that question towards the end of the day. Although that being said, the the impact can be the same at the mm. the start if you do it at <clears throat> the start of the day when um, the decision maker's mind is fresh and they've come in with a thought that they're going one way and then you can lead them a different way it might have the same impact but I would think that in this case 
and it's only my thoughts, are that the person, um, the, the, the case is that they're treading water around the issue to make sure that they've got all the information and, and it's the question set up the way that they want and then they ask the question to have an impact um, such that it can resonate overnight with the decision maker. Tim, do you know what's happening in court tomorrow? Yes, so as we mentioned, uh, Matt, uh, cross-examination continues Mr Egan, so he'll go into day five, but we're pretty sure that that will be his last day. Um, Mr Jovic covered a lot of a lot of ground today, um, so he'll, he'll cover whatever ground is left tomorrow. Then there'll be the re-examination of Mr. Egan, um, and then that will be that for the week. Um, and then we will um, wait with uh, bated breath um, the arrivals, hopefully the safe arrival of, of Dr. Jonathan Whitaker from the UK, um, coronavirus permitting. And then yes. he will um, hopefully, um, all being well, be in court on Monday to begin his evidence um, about the fingernails that um, that he will report on and that we've been reporting on <laughs> for seemingly weeks and weeks and months and months. <laughs> and um, still a while to go yet. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you both for your company and thanks for your company today. We'll be back tomorrow for day 57 of Claremont in Conversation. We look forward to chatting to you then. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.